fifthkind.tv. Our guest today is a best-selling author, in fact, a world-famous author with 45 titles to his credit, including five TV and film adaptations, which include Wolfen, Communion, and The Day After Tomorrow. I'm talking today to Whitley Strieber. Whitley, welcome to the Fifth Kind TV. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I should start by saying I'm absolutely blown away by how prolific you are as a writer. I think it's 45 titles under your belt. I'm I, don't, I, I don't keep count anymore. You get as old as I am. You don't want the two things you don't want. You don't want to count the number of books you've written and you don't want to count the number of birthdays you've had. All so, right. I won't, uh, I won't mention the number again. No, no. I, I, it could I did. be 45. It might be more. It might be a little less. I wanted to ask what inspires you to write and what has driven you to keep writing so prolifically through the years? Uh, it's, it's my life. You know, I was, when I was six years old, I wrote my first story and that story, it was, it was about the moon coming up over the valley in our country house in Texas. It was not, it was a six-year-old boy's story, but I can remember visualizing that moon and, and the world I made in the story coming forth. And before that, I used to, I had a little sort of a, a little viewing thing I had invented, which consisted of a plastic cookie jar with a flower pot on top of it. And I would peek through the hole in the flower pot down into the cookie jar. And in the cookie jar, I could imagine all kinds of cities and oceans and ships and planes flying and it, and it was my world and i i would make stories in that world and i was this was my this was the one toy i really cared about from the age of about 3 until about until i started grade school and so story is part of my blood it's in my blood I love to listen to stories, to read stories, and above all, to make stories, to tell stories. Yes. And, and so that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. You're known as a writer of fiction and nonfiction. And I should say that uh, one of your books became my son's favorite film of all time, which is The Day After Tomorrow. And so on his behalf, I just wanted to ask you about that. What was the inspiration behind that? And is there a connection between the theme of that book, which was the, the coming global superstorm, became the day after tomorrow, and the other thing that you're well known for, which is as an experiencer of close encounters? What were the origins of that book? And is there a connection? Well, it's going to take a few minutes. But yes is the answer, <laughs> the short answer. The longer answer is this. I had become, back in the late 70s, I guess, concerned about the environment. And I felt like it was in trouble. And then in 1983 or 4, 
I began working on a book called Nature's End. I had just published one called War Day with my friend Jim Konecka, who's a science writer, and about the dangers of limited nuclear war. And then I began working on this book, Nature's End, with Jim also, the, about the dangers of basically what we now call climate change. And it was obvious that it was a very serious problem. Now, then my life was rather rudely interrupted by a close encounter of the third kind of all things in 1985. And I had, to be honest with you, no idea that such a thing could even happen. Hmm. And then suddenly it did. And I wrote a book about it called Communion because it was a very intense experience and talk about a storyteller's story. It was a fabulous story, only it happened to be a true story in, in some way. I've never been sure exactly how, but it is. And uh, the what I didn't expect was the whole thing just blew up in my face and uh, people went berserk uh, trying to debunk it and say it didn't happen and I was a liar and Thousands upon thousands of people wrote us letters. I was on every conceivable TV and radio show on the planet, I think. And I was thinking to myself the whole time, what in the world is going on here? Now, that's part of, the, that's the setup of this story. The next thing that happens is, fast forward through all of the communion stuff and the subsequent books and all the contact experiences and all that stuff, to a night in a hotel in Toronto, in the Delta Chelsea Hotel room, I believe it was 2545. And it's about probably two o'clock in the morning. And there's a knock on the door. Now, I am sleeping on the bed. I've gotten in very tired, very late from doing an author tour, doing shows. And my uh, room service tray is still on the table. So I don't realize it's two o'clock in the morning. I think I'm not in my pajamas. I was just lying. I hadn't even undressed. I think it's like 1030 and the, it's the room service waiter. I open the door and this man comes in. He's a normal man. There's nothing unusual about him except that he was there. And then I realize it's really late. And naturally, my immediate thought is, I must get this man out of here because there can't be anything good about anyone about someone showing up in your hotel room at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, but then he started to talk. And it, was, it turned into the most amazing conversation I've ever had in my life. And a big part of it was exactly about exactly what became the book Superstorm, about how the climate is vulnerable to sudden changes uh, due to the way ocean currents operate. And I have watched since that meeting, and I, the book I published about it a few years later is called The Key, and then Superstorm, and Day After Tomorrow. And then, of course, again, the scientific community scoffed at the Superstorm scenario, until one of their leading uh, environmental scientists said in a big paper published with 11 other scientists that 
the uh, superstorm scenario was real, that it does happen. And quite frankly, where we are right now is the world is setting up for one of two things. It is going to heat up so fast that it's going to break through into a locked-in heat system. Or it's going to heat up to a point and then the superstorm scenario will play out. One of those two things is going to happen in the next 25 years. I don't know which. Yes. There seems to be a connection between your encounter, that conversation, and what I hear when I go to indigenous narratives. Because many indigenous peoples around the world, when they describe their first contact experience, they talk about their ancestors being visited by beings from the stars who sat down and talked to them about ecology, talked to them about how to live in harmony on the planet. And it seems that what was a matter of survival for us back then has become a matter of survival once again. There are too many of us to live in harmony on the planet now. It's as simple as that. Way too many. We can't. We have to go through this. And what we've seen in, in, in the human species is a population curve that goes up like this. I'm going to close my eyes because it's mirrored and I, I'll go crazy trying to figure out where my hand really is. And then we reach up. We're right here at the peak of this bell curve. And then we're going to go down again. And that descent's going to be very rapid, just as rapid as the ascent was. It's the way nature works. And we're going to just have to live with that. That is our future. In the communications that you're aware of in the present day on this topic, uh, are we receiving anything other than a prediction of what's going to happen? Or is there some guidance as to how we can live through this? If there's guidance, they're being very coy indeed. Uh, I don't know. There are this whole business of this presence that's apparently is really here is really difficult to pin down. I wouldn't say that I necessarily uh, think they're aliens. I don't think we can prove anything about them one way or another. Only th this. There are two things going on. One, there are UAPs here that the U.S. government has admitted are real and are unknown, of unknown origin. And there are people claiming close encounter experiences. But, are, <coughs> excuse me. Are the two things related? This we don't know. We don't know whether the close encounter experiences are with creatures, people, beings that come out of these UAPs or not. Because there's no, we don't have any evidence connecting the two. Uh, so we're really at a loss there. Now, as far as warnings are concerned, there have been zillions of them. The close encounter community is filled with people who have been warned about, to, about envir the environment. And there are so many instances of intervention from these unknown craft in nuclear missile sites that we can assume that they have also been, 
we have also been warned about the danger of nuclear weapons. But as far as the environment, I'll give you the example of the kind of warning I got. At one point, I was shown a, an image of the world, the planet, on fire. And my son dying because of environmental collapse. And it was an awful image. Now, I didn't understand what the planet on fire meant. But now I do. And certainly in Australia, you surely do. And I mean, I live in California. You got you. We've had the same kind of catastrophes here that you've had there. Only yours have been even worse. So, yes, the planet's on fire, and they don't even bother to put in the news the extent of fire in Siberia and in many parts, mm. isolated areas of Africa, and in uh, in Brazil. They just don't even bother. But the planet is on fire now. But here's the thing. No one gave me any information about how to fix it. Yes. Just that it would happen. And what does that tell me? One of two things. Either they can't fix it, or they can't explain it to us, or there's something else wrong that keeps the whole thing out of focus, and they can't communicate yes. with us somehow. You touch there on close encounters in which you are shown things and things are communicated at that level, which is really intriguing because there seems to be always an element of the person's consciousness being affected, altered, manipulated in the encounter, at the very least an experience of sedation. But then at another level, people can come out of an experience thinking what happened is what I remember what happened? Is what I saw what was really there? How do you navigate that? How did you navigate that for yourself after your first encounter back in 1985? The experience is initiatory. And back in 1985, I did not know that. All I knew is that once I had exhausted all other possibilities, uh, mental problems, brain tumors, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, or anything else that could cause hallucinations, uh, and criminal activity. Once I had, I knew that none of those things were probably involved, except for the criminal activity one, which I've never been able to prove one way or another, of course. Um, I was forced to conclude that what happened to me was somehow real. And I kind of stopped there because I don't know what real means in this context. Yes, they raped me. They beat me up. I was a, a complete basket case afterwards. But what it did to me was it overturned my entire world. Once I had gotten to that point and known that this was real, my world was that I had known before was gone. I didn't live in that world anymore. I lived in another world. And in this other world, there was a watcher in the night whose presence I couldn't identify, whose nature I could not understand, but whose voice was very clear 
calling to me in the night to find a new life. And that's what I've been trying to do ever since. The first experience you describe as an initiation, it was the beginning in a way of a, a teaching relationship. Who are we that our visitors want a teaching relationship with us? What, what's our place in, uh, in the cosmic family, if I can put it that way? Unfortunately, I'm still in grade school, so I can't tell you what our place in the cosmic family is yet. But I can tell you that I have received teaching, and I do receive teaching all the time, to the point that my life is so completely different from what it was before this happened. I can hardly even believe that other life existed. The It's like, it's like having been three feet tall, and now being nine feet tall, I, I have a much larger vision of the world than I did then. I've never been off planet as far as I know. Probably never will be. I've only actually seen these visitors a few times in my whole life. But their presence in my life is continuous and in a sense unfailing now. Uh, they they will wake me up now at three o'clock in the morning pretty much every night by put, punching me on the shoulder, blowing in my face or blowing on the back of my hand or sometimes just more recently, just mostly just waiting for me to, to do it on my own. And um, uh, then I will go and sit in my living room where I meditate and have, I've been meditating since, 1969, it's a long time. And with them since about 1990, when they began to start meditating with me. Uh, and I sit in there and I'm, there's a, a sort of internal dialogue that takes place, which part of it is not me. And the reason that part of it is not me is I get all kinds of new information. And when I look into the, into do research and look it up, it's always correct. So that can't be coming from me. And I've written three books this way now, Afterlife Revolution, about my wife, Annie, and her spectacular return after she died. And uh, then the book, A New World, about what relationship with them might be like if it spreads more than it has. And then another book, called Jesus a New Vision, which I think if of all of these most accurately defines the path I've ended up on. Because at first in my experience, the visitors were harsh. They were harsh and they did not treat me well. They treated me in a very indifferent way, almost like uh, we would treat a, 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 an animal in the laboratory or, you know, yeah. gently as they could, but not, uh, not um, uh, nicely. And in other words, there was no dignity in my side of the experience. Mm. Very different now. The more I worked in my life toward really acknowledging the good in the universe, and trying to live it 
as we have been taught, and, and not only in the Jesus uh, story, but in so many other stories of, around the world, to live the good in my everyday life and in my blood, my experience with them has changed and become a lovely experience. I'm no longer treated like an animal. I'm treated with affection and support and great persistence. They are, now that they are friends, they are really loyal friends, really loyal. People are often surprised to hear descriptions like that because we've gotten so used to the vision of Mars attacks or Independence Day or invasion of the body snatchers. But I've spoken to many people who, like you, describe this much more positive, nurturing kind of relationship. Is that because there's a, a spectrum of ET demographics in contact with us and because of that, a spectrum of experiences going on? It's a good question. And I don't know, first of all, whether or not we are in contact with ETs. Uh, I think that's a likely possibility. And if so, then <laughs> they really evolved down a very different path from the one we did. Um, but uh, is there conflict among them? Are there some with less than less than positive attitudes towards us and what should 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 happen to us well there are a lot of stories but there's one thing that is that suggests this may be the case well two things really but the most important one is to in my mind a crop formation of all things that appeared in england uh in it's called the crabwood formation and appeared in 2004 i believe and it consists of a an image of a a sort of one of the gray aliens with the big eyes and beside it a, a disc and the disc has kind of dots and dashes on it which proved to be a coherent message in ascii code and this message says, beware the bearers of false gifts and their broken promises. There is good out there, or no, more pain, but still time. There is good out there, conduit closing. And the good out there, as opposed to the bearers of false gifts, suggests there's a conflict yes and, and and i think that and that formation you'll read all kinds of frenetic debunking of the formation on the internet and it's all lies every bit of it the formation is not reproducible by any known means even now not no. at all and i i've challenged the circle maker community, I mean, you know quite a few of them. Are, they're not active very much now anymore, but they were then for a while. And I would say, well, make make the formation. If you say it's not, if someone made it, make make you do it. No one would take me up on that offer. No, indeed. Because in fact, the formation is authentically strange. Yes. 
your first experience in December 1985 implied some kind of a hybridization uh, process or, or experiment going on. How do you frame that story? It's certainly a very widely recurring story when you look at world mythology and ancient ancestral narratives. You can go anywhere on the planet and stories of hybridization will be told yes. at the level of the folklore. What's How do you interpret that? What is the meaning or the agenda that that reflects? Well, I think, I think it's probable that if we've been known about for a long time, someone, and maybe more than someone, someone has been here and played games with our DNA. I mean, we'd do it if, if we, if there was another planet where there were beings and we weren't perhaps as all that concerned about their integrity or, or we saw things about them that were desperately in need of improvement. Uh, like we could change a few genes and quadruple their intelligence level and things like that. We'd probably do it. And then of course, if we made mistakes, we'd come back, try again. And if there's conflict out there, one group might have one idea about what should be done and another group, another idea. So they would do the, the poor species. That's the chalkboard for this is going to get into a real tangle. And that's exactly where we are now. But look at us, look at the difference between a human being and any other animal on the planet. I mean, is this a designed thing or not with the hair on the head or regretfully it slips away in some cases, uh, and then the rest of the body hairless, which compels us to invent clothing. I mean, come on, where did that come from? There's no other, there, no other primates are hairless. So why are we like this? No other primates have no sexual seasonality. We don't have any sexual seasonality. We're ready to go at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, both sexes. I mean, well, women have their periods, true, but they're always fertile when 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 they are ready, and and there's no season in which they are infertile, and there is no season in which men feels sexually inactive. And not only that, we have very prominent sex organs, and they're right out on the front, and we're naked, and we're smart, and we have excellent memories. So of course we've overpopulated the planet. <laughs> and it's not our fault. Mm. And that's the main problem here. It's not because we were bad. We didn't do it right. We didn't. It's because the vast increase in population starting in around 17, around 1700 until now has completely overwhelmed the planetary environment and the human species best efforts to to maintain balance. And we have made a lot of efforts. Now, I think this was done to us. I think we're like this because somebody either wanted it to happen or made a mistake. Or perhaps both. Or perhaps one somebody wanted it to happen and another somebody thinks it's a mistake. 
and they're busy fighting over this out there in the yes. in the uh, never never, and we're here with overheating. I mean, right now I'm in Santa Monica, California, where it should be about fifty degrees on a February afternoon. It's going to push up through the eighties today, and this whole LA basin is steaming. It's going to be ninety in February. In and in you know in Australia. In February, 90, I'm, I'm talking Fahrenheit, by the way, folks, so it's not actually just bursting into flames. Uh, but uh, uh, that's, that's your temperature this time of year, not ours. We're in winter up here. What winter? I don't see it. It's gone. It's very strange. We're certainly having very strange weather patterns in Australia these days, that's for sure. How do you... What you've just said, by the way, is amply reflected if you go to the Mesopotamian narratives or the biblical narratives in the way I argue for in my books, that there is this debate among the others over how many human beings there should be on the planet. Yeah, uh, it's there talking. in the Nigerian story as well. Right from the beginning, we've been told there's this debate going on. Well, they quit debating. And finally sat back and just watched to see what would happen, I think. And what has happened is we, our population is completely out of control. All these wars we've been having, they're population wars. Uh, the, the, the militarization of the Germans from uh, 1910 until up through World War II was, happened because they felt population pressure they didn't know. Well, Hitler, Hitler actually understood that, but but what they didn't understand was that they would try to fight their way out. No one understood how hard they would try to fight their way out of what felt in those days like a trap, a population trap. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the um, Stalin's horrific and Mao's horrific instincts to starve or murder millions of their own citizens. They thought for ideological reasons, but it was actually population control. And, and I think we're, we've got a gun to our head right now. I think that there is a very good chance that added to our woes with climate change, we could start to have wars that are essentially population-related conflicts. And so if somebody did this to us, they are responsible for somehow undoing it. But And we see these ships, all things all around in the sky. We have these strange experiences. But what we don't have is coherent support. It's all, if there is any, it's so far behind the scenes, you can't even tell for sure whether or not it's there. Yes. So something is very wrong. Very yes. wrong. Yes, I agree. I find that very intriguing. How do you read the recent intensification of not only witnessed phenomena, but of soft disclosure, if we can put it that way? Um What's what's that about? Is that related to uh, an incoherence or a conflict as to what should be disclosed or what should be happening? 
Well, I think the best word <laughs> is incoherence. Uh, and I think that it, the U.S. government certainly has a very incoherent stance. Like, for example, the Department of the Navy has been quite forthcoming about this. These UAPs, NASA has. Uh, the Director National of National Intelligence has suggested that this may be an alien origin. Chris Mellon, the former Undersecretary of State, who is a major voice in this, said that recently, a few days ago, aliens are the most likely answer. But there's one organization that has remained completely silent. The United States Air Force hasn't said one word, hasn't released one second of video, is completely silent. And you'd think, well, why would they be silent? They must have so much video and they must have so much knowledge. And I'm sure those things are true. But they have been lying about this fundamentally since the organization was created in 1947. Mm -hmm. There's never been a time that they've not lied about this. Now are they going to, are willing to turn around and say, well, folks, we were just playing a little practical joke on you. And actually it was all true all along. I don't think so. So that that is the incoherence because the different the different uh, resources have different ideas about what should be done. Yes. Now the uh, Congress has directed the setting up of a task force that will collate this information outside of the context of the military, and the military is supposed to feed it information. I would guess that the Navy probably will, and the Air Force will not. And we, we, you know, people always are looking to governments to, why don't they disclose everything? Why do they keep it all secret? And I say, immediately I say to them, what are you looking in? You're looking in the wrong place. They don't matter. They don't know what's going on. They're just all confused. That's the main reason they don't tell us anything. But who isn't confused is our visitors. And they keep their mouths shut too. So the secrecy starts with them. It's their policy. Yes. And in order to maintain and support their policy, they have kept our governments way off balance and us. Because what can a government say? I mean, the, they, they say, oh, the UAPs are real. And then I call up Chris Mellon and I say, Chris, you need to interview with me on Dreamland. He says, no, no, I can't do that. Because we don't want this to bleed off into the close encounter thing because there's nothing that can be done about it and we mm. can't explain it. And then you think to yourself, well, the air force is charged with protecting us from threats from the sky. And it hasn't done that. Has it? There are millions of people all around the world who have been bruised and beaten up by this. And the hybridization program comes into it because it has to be real. In my abduction experience in 1985, they took semen out of my body. They 
inserted a device into my rectum, which sent a, I now know, uh, uh, sent an electrical current into the nerve that controls the erections. And that was why if you look at and listen to my hypnosis tapes, which are still on my website, by the way, on unknowncountry.com, uh, you'll hear me say at one point, how did that happen? Because, you know, I, I got an erection. I wasn't exactly in a situation where that would be likely to happen. Let me put it that way. And, um, but it did happen. And they had done that intentionally to extract semen from me, like, like we would from an animal in an animal husbandry situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, why would they do it? Well, they have, they have no reason if they're just collecting DNA, they have no reason to extract semen. There's lots of ways to collect DNA that don't involve semen. In fact, better ways would be to scrape the uh, the uh, uh, soft tissue in the mouth and the rectum and places like that. But instead, they took semen. And a few years later, things began to happen that I don't really talk about. But suffice to say that I do know very well that the high, that the use of semen to create beings, whether they're hybrids or not, I don't know. But the use of human semen to create entities is real. It's quite real, in my opinion. Yes. And this is just an opinion. It's I don't have proof. I always want to say that. But I had that happen and then met somebody who appeared to have been an outcome of that. Yes. I know a number of people who've had exactly the experience you've just described. And when something like that happens to you, where on earth do you go to talk about what happened, to process the experience? Do you think our culture has shifted at all since you came out with your experience in the 1980s, for us to have these conversations and begin to process at a more public level what's going on? It's shifted a little bit in that there is a, 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 there are a large number of people who have had these experiences and they are sympathetic to one another and there are people who are sympathetic to them. But the wider culture just disdains it I'm still Whitley Strieber, the rectal probe man. Ha, ha, ha. No one stops to think that they're laughing at somebody who got raped. Is that really funny? We're still, the the close encounter witnesses and abductees are still the one social group in, in the Western world who can safely be bullied in public. That's still possible. And it's a shame. Has there been a shift in terms of the secrecy around the topic? Because it seems to me that the 1980s was a time when whistleblowers uh, who were whistleblowing on official engagement in all this were really placing their lives at risk. Are we still in that space or has that changed? I don't think it's changed enough. I think that there's a little bit of a less of less intensity about the secrecy, yes. Uh, but the problem is this. The, in, the, the US, the UK, and Australia, who I think hold most of the secrets about this outside of Russia, 
and to an extent China, all have draconian security laws. I know a lot of people with, with clearances because in my world and what I do, a lot of people in, with clearances are very interested in this because they work on this and they, they're trying to make sense of it. And I've never met anyone who was a whistleblower who I thought was really a whistleblower because they get, they get arrested. Uh, and the ones who claim that they're whistleblowers but don't get arrested, I'm always very hesitant to, to just take their, what they say at face value because I'm, not, I'm never sure. Uh, but with a system like we have, it's so defective in that there's this need to know process where someone at some level decides whether or not you need to know. And there are people, for example, in CIA security and in the security sections of all of the intelligence uh, services in this country who are constantly trying to build ladders of knowledge to figure out who needs to know what and not and 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 but the result is that someone with with a uh, someone with a really brilliant mind may be prevented from working on and knowing about things that he could help with and i i know that that, that there i'm i don't know but i would say i'm certain that this happens behind the scenes all the time. And, and not just in this area, but just fundamentally, because need to know is fundamentally flawed. It's there so that secrets can be kept. And it's a very, very efficient way of keeping secrets because everyone knows so little. And there's yes. very little cross-fertilization between different intelligence services. Yes. But the result is that Nobody knows enough to put the thing together. And it's not just, uh, it's not just this. It's, it's, this is a fundamental flaw in intelligence analysis in the Western world. It might be true in the East too. I don't know how they operate. I think that's right. I think there's such a compartmentalization of information. And then as you say, the def default in the way our governments communicate with us or intelligence communicate with government non-disclosure is the bottom line that's that's where it starts that's the starting yeah. point which puts us in a difficult position my route into this whole area of et contact and paleo contact was through theology so i was very intrigued to see the title of your most recent book i think it's your most recent book yes, jesus and new vision and that title implies that it's a reframing of faith and belief in the light of these discoveries can you talk us through that a little well it's not a not in the light of these discoveries it's a reframing of belief in the light of other uh, discoveries of, and understanding of things like the history of the roman empire and why it collapsed and why that caused Christianity to emerge as a as a religion, mm -hmm. and um, why all of that happened, and what the real teachings of Jesus were, because as the, as after 
he and 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 also there's a big section in it about the shroud of turin because there's no way to debunk the shroud of turin anymore too much good science has been done that shows things about the shroud that mean that it is a truly unusual object and the simplest one is this you don't even need to go beyond this one and anyone can see it. The blood drops on the shroud have been proved to be human blood. They're not paint, they're human blood. Here is the problem with that. Human blood, when exposed to air, becomes brown and then black in a matter of weeks. But these are still red, and there's only one thing that can cause that radiation and there are many other things about the shroud that sh suggest in fact prove that it was struck by a powerful blast of radiation from within the cloth and that radiation left the the image on the cloth and also caused the blood to cease to deteriorate. That happened. Something happened in that tomb. So this is a very unusual book, Jesus and New Vision. It's not a book debunking the, the, the uh, resurrection. It's a book advocating that the resurrection really happened, but that, that what that means is that Jesus, in his divinity, also was expressing his humanity and i detach the teachings of jesus as we know them from the canonical gospels and from other sources such as the gospel of thomas from the the doctrine and the dogma that 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 emerged out of out of the the creation of the christian religion by constantine and his bishops yes. in the third century in the fourth century, I, I detach it from all of that and reframe it as what it really is intended to be, I think. Yes. A journey we, toward the good inside you. I am so looking forward to reading that book because we are singing from the same hymn sheet. I love everything that you just said about reframing that story and rescuing Jesus from the institutional uh, religion that emerged in his name and that distorted what his original teachings really were. So well, he's I'm, needed, I'm he's needed rescue for a long time. Yes, I mean, that's, they, that's true. They were burning people to death for a thousand years. And now we see that these priests are all uh, uh, making, making uh, 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 sex with little children and things there's something wrong there and the and you can't call the fundamentalists who want to who who are racists or uh, so doctrinaire and uh wanting to kill all of their the people that don't, the non-believers you know the christianity is jesus's teachings are very far from those things very close he said uh B is little children. He said, 
that let them come to him. And what happened was when the church opened the door, it raped them. Yeah, I'm sorry, but if there are demons, they live in these darned religions, in my opinion, and it's time for us to step back from that and look at this exquisitely brilliant, really powerful teaching and think, we have that in our culture. This is our Western shamanism, is Jesus and his teaching of how to live for, in, and of the good. That That's, and you know, they say the visitors are evil and, you know, they, they, they did things to me that I think were evil, in my opinion, but also in some way I was led down this path to where I am now. And this is not an evil path, and it's a good thing. And it, and it, and it, it is solidly founded in knowledge yes. that Jesus really did something extraordinary after the Romans killed him. And if you read the book, you will find out precisely what that was and precisely why he didn't, for example, when he was in this remarkable state of risen state, he didn't walk into Jerusalem and become king of the Roman Empire and king of the world, which he could have done. He hid instead and barely showed himself to a few people. I can tell you precisely why. And that is in that book. Oh, you're really whetting our appetite, Whitley. Tell us what you're working on right now, uh, the movie, The Observers, and how we can keep up with your work. Well, you better you better start getting ready to run if you're going to keep up with my work. The Observers is a documentary with me, Linda Moulton Howe, uh, <laughs> Deb Cobble, who was the Kathy Davis of Bud Hopkins's book, intruders, uh, William Henry, uh, an extraordinary, brilliant mythologist, uh, Richard Dolan, Jimmy Church, a number of researchers, uh, even uh, Jesse Ventura, the former governor of, um, of um, Minnesota is in it. And the, it, we're basically just talking about what this is and what it, it, it it's all about and what we think we should do and can do and what may be true and not true. And it's the only place I know of where anyone's been frank about the possibility that there is a conflict about us out there. And that comes from Linda Moulton Howe and the observers. And it, it's a, it's a brilliant, frank, frankly, it's a wonderful documentary. And I think you can get it on, it's streaming. And I don't know exactly how the streaming services work in Australia, but I'm, I have a feeling you have Amazon Prime. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would be surprised if you didn't. Amazon Prime, and it's on um, Apple uh, and Vimeo and other places as well. You, you just have to Google the Observer's movie, and you'll probably find exactly where to see it. Wonderful. And so... And tell us your website, where we can find you. My website is called unknowncountry.com. It started as Whitley's World back in, back in I believe, the year 2000 or 1999. And at on the day of 9-11, my wife Anne back there and in here said, this needs to be 
a daily news website. And so it has been publishing news of the edge of science every day ever since. And it also has my show on it, Dreamland. All of the editions of Dreamland from 2004 to the present are there. And many other podcasts are there. But the most important thing I think about the site is it's a wonderful community. It's a place where people who have these experiences can come together and discuss them. And we don't allow trolls. There's no politics allowed on the site. That uh, uh, Politics is not really part of this. And it, there's plenty of sites where you can go and discuss politics, but not this one. And, um, and it's a, it's a wonderful place. I love it. And I'm so grateful that people come and I hope everybody comes. We will put the links to your website in the description and to the observers. We'll look forward to seeing you at your website and in future appearances. Whitley, we've had a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. And I'm going to get down under again soon. I've been there three or four times and your part of the world is so phenomenal. I, I envy you, your, your lives down under. And I, I know a lot about what's going on down there politically and everything, but it's still a wonderful place. It still is. I look forward to meeting you when you come, Whitley. All the best. Thank you. Fifth Kind. TV.